You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, U.S. officials are discussing national security reviews for Elon Musk's various ventures, from Twitter to Tesla. This after his Russia-Ukraine tweets, especially given Tesla's strong presence in China and AI development. Plus, the White House may put more restrictions on China technology from AI to quantum computing. And Apple's design chief, who replaced Johnny Ive, is leaving the company, according to Bloomberg sources. How she impacted the product lineup and what it means for iPhones, iPads, and the incoming mixed reality headset. Biden administration officials are debating whether the U.S. should subject some of Elon Musk's ventures to national security review. This according to Bloomberg sources. This would include the Twitter deal, Tesla, SpaceX's Starlink network, and U.S. officials are uncomfortable with what they see as Musk's increasingly Russia-friendly stance and his plans to buy Twitter with the help of foreign investors. For more on this, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Dan Flatney and Sarah Fryder. So, so Dan, let's start with you. Tell us what we know at this point about this potential series of national security reviews. Right. So I think that uh, in many respects, the reviews are centering on Twitter and on the consortium of investors that Musk has lined up to help in his acquisition of the company, if that is uh, what ends up happening at the end of the day. And th those investors, some of which are based uh, overseas, uh, because of the, the, the makeup of, of that consortium, there is a potential for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to get involved in looking at uh, the interests there. Now, the question uh, is sort of twofold at that point. And one is whether the committee actually has jurisdiction, which sort of has to do not just with the financial stakes that these investors are looking at, but whether they'll have any controlling interest in Twitter, whether they'll be uh, on the board, whether they'll have access to non-public information, things of that nature. And that will be sort of in the, the deal. So CFIUS does have the ability to potentially ask Musk or ask the, 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 those involved in the deal for more information on that end. And then it sort of becomes a policy decision for the Biden administration to make as to whether they would want to step in and stop that deal or potentially more likely uh, have some revisions or some, some mitigation effects on that. At, the, at this point, it seems somewhat unlikely that that's the course that they will take, but there is some interest in perhaps 
trimming Musk's sails a little bit in terms of his uh, rhetoric out there, what he's saying publicly, and some potential risks with foreign investment in, in some of his companies. Hmm. Sarah, we're a week away from the day that this deal is supposed to close. How big a wrench is this in, in that schedule? Well, Emily, we have been on this show talking about the fact that Elon Musk wanted to buy Twitter and then he didn't want to buy Twitter and then he wanted to again, but there were some some stipulations that Twitter didn't want and just back and forth, all the legal filings, all the subpoenas. Finally, we're reporting that, that talks are cordial, that they're all on track to get this deal done by October 28th. And if the Biden administration is the wrench that falls in, uh, in its way, that would just be... Uh, it's a, such a perfect um, climax of the story. It's, it's really, it's really been a bumpy ride for the company and and for Elon Musk here and, and for us reporters at Bloomberg as well. Um, but listen, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say until they actually say they're going to do a review um, whether this is going to delay anything. As, as far as the folks involved in the deal are operating. They are, they are on track to meet the judge's deadline, which is 5 p.m. Eastern time next Friday. If they don't meet that deadline for whatever reason, um, you know, it, it could end up going to court. Um, so I think that they're pretty heads down on that. However, you know, CPS reviews could come still. Uh, and I think that they would have to respond to that, whatever it ends up being. Hmm. Dan, in your reporting, you talk also about the Russia-Ukraine tweets, Elon Musk's threat to cut off Starlink access to Ukraine. How much are officials really concerned about this, a potentially Russia-friendly stance from Elon Musk? I think that there's a couple of things that they're looking at there. Certainly, there is the rhetoric that Musk and others have engaged in on uh, this issue. Uh, in addition to that, I think that there is the Starlink issue, the satellite communications network that Musk has helped set up in Ukraine and is looking to set up in Iran as well. And I think that there is some concern from uh, defense officials and from those in the administration that giving one private individual and a private company so much control over the kinds of communication and the ways of the methods of communication uh, in these very sensitive uh, areas uh, is, is potentially a risk, uh, both on the sort of redundancy standpoint in case that communication network were to be were to go down or to be cut off for some reason, uh, and also just in terms of uh, giving one individual so much uh, influence over U.S. foreign policy to a certain extent. So I think that there's some concern about that. Beyond that, there's also generally some concern on the part of the administration on uh, Chinese investments and involvement in, in U.S. businesses. And this is sort of separate from the Ukraine-Russia uh, issue, but it certainly uh, enters into the CFIUS discussions uh, around Tesla and, and some other uh, companies. So I think that there is sort of broadly a, a desire to more carefully scrutinize foreign investment in the U.S. Whether Musk runs afoul of that uh, effort here is, is sort of a separate issue, but that is definitely something that the administration is looking to be more active on in general. Meantime, Sarah, there's this reporting that Musk is planning to cut 75% of Twitter's workforce. This is a 7,500-person company at this point. That's a lot of people. What's the reaction inside Twitter? about this news.
Looks like we lost Sarah for a moment there. Um, Dan, while we get Sarah back quickly, can you tell us the response from the White House so far on your reporting? Sure. So uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was asked about this today. She basically said she cannot com comment on CFIUS actions, which is a pretty common response, and that she's broadly supportive of what Musk has done on the communications front. The White House is saying they have no knowledge of these discussions, but I think our reporting is very solid in the sense that there are these discussions happening within the White House. There is sort of this uh, broader overall question of what do you do with a problem like Elon Musk? I mean, this is the richest person in the world who is exerting an outsized influence on foreign policy. And I think that there is a desire to uh, rein him in a little bit. And there are some, some ways to do that that are both political and, and sort of uh, non-political. Um, whether CFIUS gets involved at the end of the day, I think is it going to be a policy question. And my reporting sort of shows that it would be uh, a little bit of an outside uh, chance that, that CFIUS would get involved at this point, though not totally outside the realm of possibility, given some of the foreign investment in the, in the deal structure. So it's just something we'll have to keep a very close eye on as things move forward. Okay, so Ed, why don't you address the news that broke in the show yesterday that Elon Musk is considering right. laying off 25% of Twitter's workforce, which would be thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, what, what are Twitter employees saying? Yeah, my editor and dear friend Sarah had some technical issues there. No worries. Look, Sarah edited the story we put out on Friday, which is that it's been wellness month at Twitter. And the company's been sharing messages about work-life balance, looking after yourself. The messages coming out of Twitter are frantic. A lot of staff are very worried. They're worried that the restricted stock unit award that was supposed to happen early next month will either not happen at the same date they thought or it won't happen at all. They're looking into legal options, according to sources, about what happens if they are laid off. Do they get the right kind of severance? Um, they're also pretty unimpressed with management, we're told. You know, this communication that Elon Musk was laying off 75% of the workforce, that's not even what's upsetting Twitter staff. I'm told that what, what is upsetting Twitter staff is that actually uh, Sean Edgett, the chief legal counsel, said they had discussed cuts and layoffs, but that they ended in April when they had that definitive merger agreement. Well, that's a very different message to what staff, uh, management have told staff previously. So it's a pretty unhappy place. And I'm told, along with my colleagues Kurt Wagner uh, and Max Adler, that morale across San Francisco, New York and London is understandably pretty low right now at Twitter. Understandable indeed. Okay, Ed Ludlow, thank you, along with Sarah Fryer and Dan Flatney. Flatley. Of course, we're going to continue to follow all of your reporting on this through the weekend. Anxious investors are selling out of social media stocks with $35 billion in market value wiped out just at the open. This following Snap reporting its slowest quarterly sales growth on record. For more on this, I want to bring in Craftsman Plus founder and CEO Alex Marupka. So what does what Snap reported here signal to you, Alex? Well, I think there's a, a different like macro environment that we should talk about where advertising in general is shifting from brand advertising spend to performance spend. And the problem with Snapchat and a few other social platforms are it's more geared towards brand advertisers with a lack of first party data um, that Apple's recently changed with their ATT framework, really relying on first party data to drive that value. The issue with Snapchat is it doesn't have that first party data and opposite of TikTok, 
which is a very sticky platform driving a lot of engagement. It doesn't have that stickiness factor either. That's why it took a big hit today in the markets. How much do you think these are short-term issues or are they long-term issues? I think we're going to see more long-term issues here in, in just the social space. So what, what the trend is happening right now is retail media. So going back to first-party data, there's all these other smaller platforms that are coming up in the space right now. Think of Marriott, think of Lowe's, Home Depot. They're all building ad businesses. Amazon and Walmart's kind of already paved the way for that. So because they have this first-party data, they, the, the, the advertising dollars are no longer just spent on Facebook and Google. So you're going to see kind of like a deteriorating spend across all the social platforms leveraging these smaller audiences. So what does this mean for Meta? What does this mean for Alphabet? What does this mean for Twitter, which obviously has another unique storyline going on as well? So Google has a lot of first-party data, um, Gmail, YouTube. They, they have a lot there, so they're going to be fine. And they have a lot of search intent, so I'm not worried about Google. Twitter is more one of the platforms like Twitter, Pinterest, and Snapchat are kind of the three that I'm more worried about and concerned about there ability to drive performance for advertisers. Uh, Meta, they, they still have a lot of first-party data. Their algorithms are really robust. Uh, I think they're going to still be able to be a player in the space and drive a meaningful value and continue to have a prosperous business. Even if Mark Zuckerberg isn't as focused on Facebook and Instagram as he is on trying to pivot into the metaverse? I mean, Facebook's just a, a machine, uh, so that company has a lot of great talent behind it. Uh, a lot of folks have built that up, so even if he is focused on Metaverse, I still think that platform is still where majority of advertisers spend their money, and that's not going away, at least anytime soon. Now, Adweek just happened in New York. What are the big themes, the big takeaways about advertising more broadly is changing? Yeah, so there's, there's a different framework. So Apple just announced their Scan4 update, which is kind of their framework of how to handle privacy. And what's, what the big changes are is we need more data. And so how do you get more data? You have that first party data, but you also have attribution windows, which is the time you can actually take credit for an impression or a, a click. And so what's happening is they're opening up those attribution windows to feed more data to these algorithms that are these ad platforms, which is ultimately going to boost the whole space. So we actually should see from this new release with Apple, the Scan4 update, that there will be an overall boost in general in just ad dollars flowing uh, to these platforms. So do you see a hierarchical shift here in where uh, you know, the biggest ad dollars are going or you know, the recipients of the big ad dollars? Like, How does this marketplace look different, let's say, in five years? Yeah, so right now what's happening is you know, F Facebook's still a big player in the space. Google's going to do well. Apple's probably going to merge into it in a meaningful way, so we should look out for Apple. TikTok's got its stickiness and going to continue to drive kind of those like high-flyer advertisers that are looking for that like mega win. They can find that on TikTok, so that's, they still have the dream. The ad business hasn't been totally proven out, but they have the stickiness factor. Uh, it's every, all these other platforms, what we're, we're kind of seeing in the space that's interesting as well, uh, that was brought up at Adweek, is connected TV. And so you're going to see a shift from you know, these digital platforms that are just on your, you know, your phone and the smaller devices, shifting over to larger screens, connected TV with Netflix, Disney getting into the space. And what's really happening is, with all this extra inventory on the space, advertising is about supply and demand. So there's advertiser demand and there's the inventory, the publisher supply. With all these other platforms opening up their businesses for ad dollars, and again, this is from the macro environment of, hey, our business is hurting, we need to make money. What's an easy way to make money? Turn on ads. So everyone's turning on ads and building it that way. But you see these companies, the more inventory you have in the space, 
And demand is already lowering that we're, we've talked about previously. So lower demand, more inventory. We're actually going to see global costs of ad impressions probably decrease over the next five years. Interesting. Okay. Alex Maruka, CEO and founder of Craftsman Plus, thanks so much for bringing your perspective to us this Friday. All right, coming up, another top Apple executive stepping down. How this departure opens a major hole in Apple's design team next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Apple's head of hardware design, Evans Hankey, is leaving the iPhone maker three years after taking the role, creating a significant vacancy at the top of the company, known, of course, for its iconic designs. This according to people familiar with the matter and our own Mark Gurman's reporting. So, Mark, what do we know about her departure and why she's leaving now? So this is a pretty significant departure. Evans Hankey is the vice president of industrial design reporting to the COO. She essentially replaced Johnny Ive, Apple's former chief design officer, in 2019 upon his departure. So she's been in charge of the look and feel of the iPhone, the Apple Watch, the iPad, the Mac, all of Apple's products for the last three years. Uh, the departure was announced internally within Apple uh, this week, and she'll be departing in about six months. Uh, the notable news here is that there's also no replacement for her. So Apple hasn't been able to come up with, since she announced her departure internally, who would replace her at this hmm. point. Well, filling Johnny Ive's shoes was always going to be a difficult job for, you know, whoever uh, was going to try to do that. But do we know why she's leaving after just three years? Yeah, at this point, it's unclear to say for certain why she is leaving. Uh, she's certainly not at the point of retirement. She's only been in that role for three years, though she has been at Apple for about two decades. Uh, she was basically the manager of the industrial design team under Johnny Ive, right? So her background is in product design, but she ran the team uh, as a manager. And it was pretty much a natural succession for her to take over for Johnny. He was her number two in that respect. There are some other senior designers that still remain, 
But to tell you the truth, many of them, many of Johnny Ive's close collaborators, most senior designers over the past two decades, the ones responsible for the designs of the products that we see today, a lot of them have either left to start their own firms, left to other companies, and some of them have joined you know, Ive's Love From company as well. But there still are a few top designers there. There's Richard Howarth. He temporarily had this role between 2015 and 2017, still reporting to Ive, but he's not someone who wants to manage a team, so I think it's unlikely that he takes that role again. Uh, but certainly, this is a major development for anyone who's a fan of the look and feel of Apple's devices. How do you imagine this will impact the product lineup? Yeah, I mean, the way Apple's product development process goes is they could be working on things in their design labs right now that we won't see for two to seven years at this point, right? If you take a look at the current Apple product lineup, the Apple Watch Series 8 has the same design as the Apple Watch from four or five years ago, right? The iPad Pro, same design as four years ago. Uh, some of their other products have legacy designs. The iPhone 14, same design as from two, three years ago, right? So we are in for a big change to Apple's designs probably over the next year or two just because those designs have lasted so long. And I think we're going to only see the fingerprints of Evans Hankey's Evans leaderships over the design team in the next year or two. And then maybe four or five years mm -hmm. in the future, we'll see how the design evolves. All right. Mark Gurman, as always, thank you. Meantime, Instacart is reportedly holding off on plans to go public until at least next year. The food delivery giant had been planning to put its S1 filing out this week, but is said to have reconsidered. Given the turbulent market, Instacart slashed its valuation to about $13 billion and had decided not to go public until market conditions improved. Reddit says it now has more NFT wallets than the popular trading website OpenSea, Reddit Vault, which lets users create wallets to use as avatars, says it's got more than 3 million such wallets. OpenSea, the largest NFT marketplace by all-time sales volume, has around 2.3 million active wallets. Reddit is preparing for its own public debut sometime in the next year. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Sources tell Bloomberg the U.S. is looking into new rules that would limit China's access to powerful emerging computing technologies, potential plans focusing on quantum computing and artificial intelligence software. For more on these escalating tensions between the U.S. and China, let's bring in strategy risk founder and CEO Isaac Stone Fish. So tensions, Isaac, have been ramping up for a while. And, and this yet again, where is this leading? So if we step back and look at how negative things have been between the United States and China and the very real possibility that China invades Taiwan as soon as this year, again, not likely, but possible, possibly the U.S. and China are leading to war. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a profound statement. Why go that far? We are not in a world that's past geopolitics. And I think we had this nice global mental break of big power wars from the fall of the Soviet Union and, and from after the Korean War and the Vietnam War, the proxy war. Now we're 
waking up to the fact that great powers do fight wars with each other. They have throughout history, and they're very likely to again. And China has been very explicit about its willingness to retake Taiwan, even with force. The US has been very explicit about its willingness to defend Taiwan with force. And so if China calls the United States bluff, that very much could lead to a active, hot war between the world's two most powerful countries. How hot does this war get? So it depends on how lucky the world is. It could go anywhere from a limited regional-ish war to something that was similar to the Korean War to World War III. And it's stunning to me as we talk to people in the investment community that the U.S. government and certainly the Chinese government are awake to this possibility, but the investment community seems to want to keep pretending that things will go back to where they were in the Obama era of friendship with a sprinkle of competition between the U.S. and China, and those days are over. Hmm. What do you think this would mean for the tech industry? It would be transformative, catastrophic to many, and very positive for some who plan ahead. I think Apple, Tesla, other major companies are recognizing the difficulty of sourcing from China and trying to explore other supply chain alternatives. I think the absolute cratering of the Chinese market would be cratering for a lot of businesses' bottom lines. And I think, frankly, a lot of companies haven't started thinking about this from an ethical perspective, which is, okay, I'm a major US company. I have thousands of staff in China. If China invades Taiwan, will Beijing view my staff as enemy combatants? And how do I deal with that now? There's a lot of action with Afghanistan and with Ukraine of tech companies taking care of their employees when those countries descended into war and chaos. What plans do tech companies have in place to take care of their own in China if China is to invade Taiwan? Well, and if indeed that does happen, how does that play out, especially given the way we've seen the U.S. come to Ukraine's aid to a certain extent, um, but Taiwan being, you know, you know, a very also unique situation. So, with the caveat that. It's impossible to predict the future. I'm actually quite heartened by the US restraint towards Ukraine, because I think the message that sends to Beijing is not, we're going to treat Taiwan like Ukraine, but we are preparing for the possibility of you to invade Taiwan. And so we're not fighting a two-front war. We're not going to fight both Russia and China at the same time. If you invade Taiwan, we as a country will be ready for you. And we're supporting what the Ukrainians are doing, but we're keeping a lot of our powder dry, so to speak. And hopefully that message will help deter. So you think the U.S. would be much more hands-on if China were to invade Taiwan? I don't think Congress would let the United States not go to war with China if China launched a full-scale invasion of Taiwan. This is all terrifying, Isaac. I mean, really terrifying, especially given the 30 years of, of relationship building. I know you and I both spent um, many years in China, and it's, it's, a, it's a very different relationship. Um, you know, it's, it's evolved into a very different relationship over the last several years. 
you know, what about an, a new administration? You know, we've got a presidential election in a couple of years, or is this something that you see carrying on no matter who's in office? So the U.S. Navy chief just talked about the possibility of a war with Taiwan this year, next year. I, I'm much less worried about how things are going to play out in the medium term. I'm far more worried about 2022, 2023. Again, if, if I had to bet, I'd say it's less than 50% chance going to happen. And I think it's possible that a future Trump administration, if that happens again, uh, Trump is, is more likely to sell out Taiwan for other concerns. I, I think another Republican or another Democrat would be far less likely to do so. I think it's possible that Beijing would think that right after the 2024 election, before the new president takes power, is the ideal time to strike. Uh, hopefully they don't. Hopefully they decide never to try to seize Taiwan by force. But. We haven't been having this debate. We haven't talked about what should the US do now to both prepare for war with China, but also how do we make sure that we act ethically as well? I'm quite worried about our atrocious history with Japanese Americans in World War II and German Americans in World War I, and we're already seeing bubbling of that with Chinese Americans. And I, I think so much of the conversation about war is how do we prevent the war as opposed to Regardless of what we do, the U.S. might go to war with China, and how do we conduct that war in a way that's most ethical and most adheres to our values? Uh, certainly an interesting perspective. I do want to get your thoughts on the latest uh, Bloomberg News reporting on TikTok. We did some analysis of the deal that the U.S. government uh, has struck with TikTok and, and its parent, ByteDance, to store U.S. users' data on Oracle servers. But Bloomberg News has concluded that this would still leave U.S. data vulnerable. What's your take on this? TikTok in a time of good relations between the US and China is barely a threat compared to other big social media platforms. You could put it roughly in the same category as Facebook. TikTok in an era of tensions between the US and China or an era of war between the US and China can easily function as a basically national sleeper agent for Chinese intrusion into U.S. homes, U.S. hearts and minds, and as such is very dangerous. And I, I think any sort of deal that gets struck between the U.S. and Oracle and TikTok won't allay those concerns. And so if tensions reduce between the U.S. and China, I'm not worried about TikTok. If you have a Chinese app on tens of millions of phones and the U.S. and China are going to war, that's a huge national security concern and one that I don't think investors or the administration has fully um, unplugged, unplumbed. Okay. Uh that is a bleak assessment indeed. Uh, Strategy Risk founder and CEO Isaac Stonefish, thank you for joining us. Obviously a major topic we're going to continue to follow. Now on a lighter note, Google chips, not the ones in their Chromebooks or smartphones. Quick Takes Karumi Mori sheds light on the company's latest marketing push. Google is getting into chips. The crunchy kind that you can actually eat. 
You can probably tell from the package that they're only available in Japan. And here, they're part of the marketing push for the latest Pixel 7 phones from the internet giant, designed to remind us that Google also makes the other kind of chips, the ones made out of silicon. The Pixel has Google's own Tensor G2 chip, the company's most advanced AI-powered cameras, and its litany of internet services, from Google Maps and Photos to YouTube and Chrome. It's hard to imagine Apple resorting to the potato chip ploy, but that's because people already know and love the iPhone, whereas Google is running ads in the US saying, Did you know Google makes a phone? It says something about both the ongoing failure of Google's Pixel phones to sell in big numbers and the company's opportunity in Japan. In the US, Apple and Samsung account for 74% of the market, whereas in Japan, Samsung barely scrapes together 7%. That's a missed opportunity for Google, whose Android operating systems run Samsung handsets. There's scope to take chunks out of its Silicon Valley rival by stealing business in a way that Samsung has so far failed to do. And if it takes spicy, savory, cheesy gimmicks to help bring attention to the cause, so be it. So how do they taste? Hmm, not bad, but there's a far tastier meal on offer and Google wants a piece of it. Crunchy. That was Quick Takes, Karumi Mori. All right, coming up, the great resignation bleeding into the crypto industry, this time shaking up the C-suite. We'll talk more about this next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. to today's crypto report and the Bloomberg Big Take. Crypto's $2 trillion wipeout has recently cut a path through the C-suite. More than two dozen high-ranking executives have vacated their posts in the last two months alone. Brett Harrison of FTX US and Jesse Powell of Kraken, just two names in the shakeup. Bloomberg's Hannah Miller joins us now with more. Hannah, who else? 
Yeah, I know. It's been a deeply unsettling slew of announcements of CEOs stepping down. Um, I can think of Alex Mashinsky over at Celsius, uh, Brett Harrison over, F- over at FTX US, and Sam Tribuco over at Alameda. So it's been a lot of big names making big changes and stepping back from their companies. Why is this happening now? Obviously, there's a huge, there's a ton of volatility in the market. Is that it? Yeah, there are a number of factors here that are contributing to changes in the corner office at major crypto companies. So, yes, uh, the huge downturn that's affecting the market and causing crypto winter is a major reason why CEOs might be stepping back. Some are at companies that have had serious, serious issues. I'm thinking bankruptcy, like with Celsius. And others are just looking to kind of save their sanity and have even talked about taking time, uh, time off to see friends and family and spare their mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also seen growing regulatory scrutiny as well. How are venture capitalists, crypto venture capitalists approaching this? Uh, or maybe are they behind a number of these departures? Yeah, so, uh, you know, crypto VCs are some of the industry's biggest cheerleaders. Uh, We have seen a drop in funding for blockchain startups, though. It was a 37% decline to $4.4 billion during the third quarter. Uh, I think they're trying to see the bright side of this. In some cases, they're looking to, they're saying that actually more experienced CEOs who might be coming from traditional finance or have actually helped companies go public might be filling these roles. So it's a new level of maturity for the crypto industry and kind of an optimistic take on what's happening here. How much more pain are we expecting? We were speaking with Kavita Gupta of, of Delta Blockchain earlier this week. She thinks Bitcoin's going to fall to twelve or thirteen thousand um, dollars. You know, even further than it's already fallen. And and if that happens, I can assume there's going to be a lot more attrition. Yeah, I have talked to people who have said we should expect more layoffs down the line. That's been a huge issue for the industry. Um, We're seeing startups buckle down for the next 18 to 24 months, making sure they have enough cash on hand to outlast crypto winter. I haven't talked to anyone who thinks this is going to resolve anytime soon. Um, But yeah, people are still uh, invested in blockchain's long-term prospects. All right, Bloomberg's Hannah Miller. Thank you. Continue to follow. Another week over, but brace yourselves. Next week is a big one with $15.3 trillion of market cap reporting earnings results. Lots of that. Big tech to break it all down. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. So, Ed, we're watching a lot of big names. Yeah next week. Walk us through it. Yeah, I feel like we've just been dipping our toe really this week, right, with Tesla and Snap. Next week, it's the big ones, you know, the mega caps who have an important role to play in markets because of their weighting on major indices. But it's just such a big lens on the world. Microsoft, Alphabet, the parent company of Google on October 25th. Twitter, look, we can expect a press release potentially. We don't know what's going to happen with the Elon Musk deal, but they're not going to do a normal earnings. You hope for some commentary 
from them around the macro advertising environment, Meta as well. You know, after Snap, I think we very quickly turn our attention to Meta and, and, and wonder if the things that hurt Snap, which weren't just a pullback in advertising, but the iOS ad tracking changes from Apple, that really hurt them. You, you'd imagine that's analogous for Meta as well. And then we finished strong, M. We finished strong October 27th with Amazon and Apple. You know, those are our favorites. Yeah, favorites indeed. You know, obviously we were talking earlier about the big ad slowdown. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that as it pertains to Google. Meta, our guest earlier, seemed to be pretty confident in, in Google and Meta's results, much more concerned about names like Twitter, Pinterest, and, and Snap as we saw, what are you looking for? Yeah, I think what, what's interesting in Google's case, and, and he talked about this right in, in terms of search, is that we learned earlier in the year, as we kind of came out of the pandemic, um, even in a changing economy, Google still attracts eyeballs because consumers, even if net they're spending less, they change their spending habits. They start searching for experiences. Travel plays a big part in that. Even so, they're not immune, right, to, to what we're seeing. The stronger dollar is also really interesting. You know, you and I have talked about that less over the last couple of years. But if you think about the names we're talking about, these are big global technology companies. And in fact, when you consider the S&P 500, it is the technology sector and the communications sectors most exposed. Why? They do business all around the world. They are bringing in international revenues that are, are going to get hit by that stronger dollar. So it's certainly something we'll pay attention to. And I know, Ed, you are, you know, you're an eternal optimist. Give That's us right. some give us some hope. What are the what are the signs of light, the silver linings that yeah. you see? Yeah, look, there are some people out there who think the end of the world is inevitable, not naming any names. But there is a view in the market that the tech sector could hold up better in this third quarter, right? You think about these names, they're global players with entrenched market positions, strong balance sheets. They can weather the storm. Apple, Amazon, they are able to be nimble because of their size. Whether they pull that off or not, it's yet to be seen. But Citigroup, for example, are overweight global technology right now. They're optimistic that in the long run, some parts of tech can weather the storm. So we'll see if that happens. All right, Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow, thanks so much. I know you'll be across it all next week. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. On Monday, we're talking about Meta's new advertising strategy with Brad Erickson of RBC Capital Markets. Of course, we'll dive into the broader trends we're seeing in the social media uh, ad turmoil as well, given what we were talking about when it comes to Snap, Twitter, Google, and more. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.